Welcome to Northern Latitudes. I'm Bill Alt. In all scientific disciplines, there is a gap between what is known by the general public and what is known by scientists. In his book, Grizzly Bear Science and the Art of a Wilderness Life, Dr. Bruce McClellan closes that gap. The book contains a considerable amount of the science of bears, covering topics ranging from the bear's diet to how bears are counted and the factors that influence birth and deaths and regulate population. Mixed among all that science is also the amazing story of how a couple in their mid-20s began the Flathead Grizzly Project, built a log cabin on the bank of the Flathead River, had babies, and raised them in the wilderness among these bears. Welcome to Northern Latitudes, Bruce. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be here. The most obvious question, the easiest question, but probably the hardest one to answer, is how the heck did all this happen? <laughs> Whoa. Uh, <clears throat> no, it's not hard. Uh, you know, I've, since I was a little kid, I kind of wanted, I was interested in, in animals and wild places, and, and I always wanted to be a wildlife biologist. And uh, after graduating with a bachelor's degree, I, uh, I was looking around for a job, and uh, I met the wildlife biologist from the Kootenai region in British Columbia, the very you know the southeastern corner of the province, and he uh, asked me to con- to continue with an elk study that had been begun with uh, a, a grad student that went on to a different job. So I and Celine, my girlfriend at the time, moved up there to work on elk, and then I did a a, a short project on mountain goats and. And then in 1978, in the autumn, he asks, since the mountain goat work was over, he says, there's this grizzly bear issues going on. And, you know, lots of different issues with grizzly bears. And he says, would you want to do a grizzly bear research project in the Flathead Valley? So it was, oh, that sounds good. So we, you know, loaded up our little VW Beetle and, you know, went down and learned about how to, how to, learned how to learn about grizzly bears. So that's (laughs) how it started. It was, uh. It wasn't like I was, you know, born wanting to work on grizzly bears as opposed to any other species. It's just any, any, uh, any, any large mammal that lived in the wilderness, I was very excited to be out there studying. But the grizzly bears are, I, I don't know what to call them, almost mythological creatures, especially to us people out in the East, um, well, because we just don't know that much about them. Yeah. Well, they, they are. There's something about them. I think there's something innate. In humans, about large predators, large carnivores. For example, I also in the winters when I was a grad student, I'd do work uh, on other species just to make some money because I didn't have any. <laughs> so I'd do some deer work, and I know what what evening we'd go out, my, my wife and I, and we were watching some deer on a on a hillside that were radio collared. We had caught them, and after about five minutes, she looks at me and she says, "Deer are sure boring compared to grizzly bears, aren't they?" And 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 even though you know, to watch deer on a hillside is is fine, but watching grizzly bears on a hillside for some reason is a is a lot more interesting. Just there's something about them that that grabs our our imaginations and our attention more. I find, but uh, and so does she. <laughs> yeah, it, it's amazing when you see one, and I've only been fortunate enough to see I think two in my okay. travels, and uh, they're just so big and they're so omnipresent like they just take over you know when you're looking and you see one it's like whoa that is a big bear 
Yeah, but they they can get very they get obviously large, but there's also something just about their structure and their presence that uh, that I think impresses people, and including myself. They're uh, they're you know there's something about them they're, they're, that grab us deep down. You know, sort of like, sort of, I think innately, you know, spiders and snakes and things, people react to them for, you know, obvious reasons that they're, they, they have probably kind of tormented humanity for a million years. And there's something about large carnivores that also have that kind of innate uh, reaction within us. Yeah. And despite all that, I mean, and the most recent one was the end of September, I believe that we had um, a fatality involving yeah. bears. Yeah. Um, it doesn't happen very often. And is it because we don't cross paths with them? Like as you read oh. through your book, I'm amazed at how, how, how little you do see them when you're actually looking for them and you have a hard time finding them. Oh, we, we cross paths as we, as in humans cross paths with them way more often than we think we do. I, I'm it's, and it's occurring, uh, I think increasingly, commonly as the numbers of people go way up and the numbers of bears go up in certain in most places in in southern british columbia and alberta anyway uh no it, it is quite quite amazing most of the time almost all the time bears just aren't really interested in us uh and that's good they're certainly not out there to prey on people uh they're they're if they if they wanted to do that there'd be nothing, there'd be no easier prey. <laughs> but uh, I mean we're slow and not very you know not very aware of our surroundings compared to you know we are not very vigilant compared to uh, de you know deer and elk and things. So but they're certainly not into it. So uh, it's uh, it, it, I I often feel fairly comfortable uh, out there. Uh, you you just don't want to surprise them, you know. You don't want to surprise a, a grizzly bear at a close range. That's that's then things can get exciting. But, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exciting like uh, the story in your book about the first time you trapped one, right? Was that was what was he called? Rushy? Was it Rushy? R yeah, Joe Perry, the guy, the Montanan I was working back then. I mean, God, this is forty-five years ago. He called him Rushes. Jo Rushes. Joe right. Joe was quite a character. Uh, and and so was Russia's, and that's what he called them. So uh, that that was the first grizzly I captured and put a radio collar on. And uh, the last one I did was yesterday. <laughs> no way! Yeah, tell us uh, a little bit more about that. Yeah, no, I was it was the day after my seventieth birthday. I mean, I started the flathead study when I was twenty-four. Like I was, I was, you know, God, not much more than a kid. But uh, anyway, I, my wife and I were in. Pemberton just doing our run, which is about 40 kilometers from our home, doing our, you know, our, our bi-weekly run or whatever you call it. Every couple of weeks, we go to town to do groceries and stuff. And I get a, a, a phone call from a biologist that I know in Squamish, and they'd caught this bear the conservation officers had that was a grizzly bear that had been in the schoolyard in Whistler quite a bit. And people were quite concerned because this grizzly's in the schoolyard with the kids. And uh, so they caught it, but they wanted to put a radio collar on it, and they they didn't have one that they thought would fit. And uh, the, the Nicola, the the biologist, knew that uh, I I've I've Jerry rigged a lot of radio collars in my life and could probably make something happen. So she asked me if I'd just come down and help them. So I was I went down to Whistler yesterday and from Pemberton, isn't that far? Another forty k and uh, and helped the COs with their with their bear and and then came home. I thought you were going to say, I just keep one in the trunk of the car just in case. But. No, 
<laughs> no, no, it was it was it was it was fun to do. I hadn't done one in in a couple of years. I'd been kind of you know I've retired, so I don't get my hands on a on a grizzly very often anymore. So it was it's always I, I you know it's always nice to to get in there and uh, you know touch one and do stuff with it, you know measure it and all that. <laughs> and and the book does go into some pretty in-depth scientific information as well. So if you're, if you're interested at all in these animals, you're going to learn a lot and you're going to learn about things that I had no idea. Yeah. That, that was my, my ultimate goal was to kind of let the, you know, the general public, let's call it, let's call people, uh, you know, let them try to understand what we've been learning and what the bears are about and what problems they have and what, what the future may look like in all the different aspects of their ecology from, from diets to habitats, to uh, diurnal, you know, diurnal patterns of activity to, you know, reproductive rates to how do we count them, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but mixed in with, with a hope, lots of bear stories and our human family stories and things that are, that I hope keep people kind of happily engaged as opposed to too much, too much science, and and, the, and of course the science chapters are not written like I've written most of my life. I've written lots and lots of science journal papers, and and I, I know almost nobody reads them. So so I I've, I hope I've written them in a way that people can actually understand them quite easily. You have trust yeah, me. Good. I I, yeah. I read it and I was it, it's it's just because the science is so interesting, and yeah. I think that one of the first big real science chunks of it we'll talk about is 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 the diet yeah you have a an extensive but it's so interesting because our our my anyways misunderstanding about the bears was how little meat they eat like you just have this thing in your head where they must eat a fairly substantial amount of meat and then you find out like i don't know what the numbers were like 80 or 90 percent of some of them especially the females are eating seeds and berries that's most of their diet yeah, that's that's the the flathead population. Other populations, of course, have different diets, which is which is what's you know fascinating about grizzly bears is they're they're so adaptable. Uh, you know that species is is one of the most widely distributed species on Earth. They you know they range from of course the the, the wet coastal rainforests in you know British Columbia now that are relatively warm and wet and all the way through the, the dry areas, but they're really found in the Gobi Desert in North, in, you know, Central Asia. They're found in the Arctic Islands. So they have an incredibly diverse range and across that range, their diets can vary enormously. The, you know, the, the, the bears that live on the coast, of course, eat meat, they eat salmon, <laughs> lots of it. So that, you know, there, there's a lot of that in their diets, the bears in, in, in say Yellowstone and, and even through the, you know, Alberta, the east side of the Rockies, they eat a lot more meat than the, the flathead bears do. Largely, be, I think anyway, because the plant foods aren't as good there. So they, they, it's worth their while to spend more effort trying to get meat. Meat doesn't want to get eaten. So it's harder to catch where plants <laughs> do want to get eaten. A lot of them, you know, like berries, they want to get eaten. So they're a lot easier to catch. So there's a, always these trade-offs of what bears, how, what they feed on. And uh, the flathead is an area that, that although there's quite a few elk and deer and moose and mountain goats and even some sheep that they, they focus on, on plant food, largely because there's a lot of plant food. It's uh, we've got wonderful berry fields of two major species and we've got rich, 
uh, river bottoms and places where the, the green stuff grows really, really well. So it, it's uh, got a lot of good plant food. So the bears sort of are happy eating plants. I mean, you're not going to kill many elk if you're in a huckleberry field, you know, eating huckleberries. So that, <laughs> and they don't. <laughs> and, and part of that also, um, the diet is linked to population, obviously, because yeah. the, you know, if the food's available and the food's good, the population does well. And you were, and I think in the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think in the book you were saying that not only does the flat have, have a good berry source, it's a great berry source because of wildfires in the past. And now, again, maybe in the next little while as we've had more and more wildfires. Yeah, that that's, is, the, is sort of the story of the flathead. I think clearly places that have really good food, like the salmon streams in Alaska, have incredible densities of bears. But those fish have gained their nutrients across, you know, the North Pacific, a huge area. And then they come and concentrate and die in really small areas. So the bear numbers go through the roof, but they're really getting nutrients across any vast area of the North Pacific. When you get into the interior, our, our densities are, are much less than they are in some of those Alaska places. But still, the flathead for an interior population has a lot of bears. And you're right, it, there, there were some enormous wildfires in the 1930s. The 1930s in that part of the world had some very hot, dry years as well, and some major bear fires. And, uh, and after those fires, you know, decades later, we have huge huckleberry fields and buffalo berry fields, as well as other fruits. But those are the two kind of major fruits. Uh, wild fruits for bears, and they're both in the flathead. So we we have some pretty pretty good densities of bears there. And it was funny reason because one thing I know you did solve is a bear does shit in the woods because you have a quite a quite an extensive chapter on how it's used for analysis of analysis on what they eat, which makes perfect sense when you think about it. But yeah, yeah, yeah. There were there were some technological changes. In many, in many parts of our, our, our wildlife science over the years we worked there, and, and, and one was to do with diet. You know, we, we learned an awful lot in the old days by having Bill Callahan, not me, uh, pick through lots and lots and hundreds and hundreds of bear turds. Uh, but starting in the kind of mid-1990s, uh, the ability to learn what bears are eating from from isotopes of particularly carbon and nitrogen allowed us to know what what uh, what parts of the food chain are going in like what trophic levels they're eating on so we could sort out a lot of other challenges uh, understanding their diet so the technology has, has has really improved our ability to understand what they what these animals are eating as well so it's uh, it's been interesting a lot of other technological changes have happened in in the course of my career too that have allowed us to look at different things in a different way, which has been yeah. interesting. Yeah, there was some um, some really interesting pieces on the genetic analysis from their hair. And yeah. and that was kind of, that was really neat too. I mean, it, like I said, it's a really interesting yeah. combination of science and personal story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I was, I wasn't surprised, but I, I found it very kind of human that when you're capturing these bears, you're naming them. So you get to know these bears and you follow them for years. Yeah. Yeah. The naming thing, some people have poo-pooed. They think you bias the, you know, the individual by giving it a human name. But 
I don't know, every, the people I started, I learned from were Montanans, the, you know, the people at the University of Montana, and they named bears. And, uh, you know, you can remember names better than numbers. It's just one of those things. And uh, I don't know, none of the names, except for maybe Rogers, had any connection with anything. As a matter of fact, I, I almost never pick a name. Someone else does. I often ask, <laughs> what should we name this one? I mean, my kids named a lot of them. And they were, you know, at various ages, had some goofy names and some not so goofy names. But, uh, yeah, it, it happens. But, again, yeah, as you said, you know, I followed some bears for, well, what, up to 32 years. So you, uh, it's, it's nice to have a handle on it. It's a little bit more than just a, a number for, for communicating with each other, like, you know, with my wife and my kids and everybody, they know who these bears are. But if I called it number 64, they wouldn't, they'd forget and they wouldn't be interested. So it, yeah, it allowed us to get along. <laughs> it's, it, it's, it's just so funny because it does, it gives them an, and you, you notice the traits and you combine the traits with the name. And all of a sudden, you know that this bear is likely to be doing this because that's what he or she has done in the past. And I found it yeah. a really, just a real human connection with the animal that you were studying. Yeah. Um, speaking of your, speaking of your kids, <laughs> what's it like raising two kids in basically wild wilderness? Because the flathead is not easy to get to, and it's not easy to get out of. And the story of your the birth of your first child, Michelle, is is an interesting one because you know you're she's a little overdue, and you're taking her for a long hike, and you're crossing a a log bridge and you're doing this with a uh, wife who's nine months plus pregnant. And, uh, and then the life with the children starts in this background. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it was challenging during those last weeks of pregnancy because you could, I couldn't really leave Selena camp because if something, you know, if birthing happened, she'd have a long drive out. It's about a, you know, almost a two hour drive to, it was a two hour drive to town. So, uh, so she'd come along in the truck and, you know, usually she, she's quite content uh, to have a good book and, and wait for an hour or two while I, you know, hike off and find a bear, you know, accurately by getting close and I'd come back. So we did that. But that, you know, the day of her due date, actually, it ended up with, I thought the bear wasn't that far and it ended up to be quite a hike. And uh, <clears throat> so that's what happened that day. Uh, but uh it's a great story. Yeah, it's a great story. And then the other great story is Michelle meeting her first bear before she can see it. She's barely yeah. a few days old. Oh, yeah. you, you brought her home and there's a bear. And yeah. but of course, you can't see it yet. Yeah. But, no, and, and, and what's also, I guess, as a great story of that is that she's she did her Ph.D. on grizzly bears. And uh, she's, you know, that's been a lot of her life too. So she started young. <laughs> <laughs> she did start young. Yeah. <laughs> What's another thing about these bears that we don't know and we should know? Oh boy. Uh, there's a, there, I, I, well, two questions there. I don't know what we don't know because everyone has their different ideas. Uh, you know, every, you know, almost everything about no, them. Oh, and I we don't it, know. I I, okay. I wish you I know did. a great deal about yeah. them where the rest of us don't. Oh. Like what, I, I, another I thing that struck think, me was their initial range. Yeah, within Canada, because I don't oh, think yeah. a lot of people understand that either. Oh, I mean, that they were distributed across most of the pretty well all the prairies, right to through Manitoba and even out on the on the uh, Labrador and northern Quebec and things. Yeah, yeah no, they they were 
well distributed. And of course, in the U.S., they were just and Mexico. They were right down into Mexico and and throughout the western. You know, not all of the West, we don't think. There's some deserts and dry areas in, I don't know, Nevada and, and California and things where they probably weren't. But uh, they were, you know, widely distributed, uh, you know, in 18, let's say 1849 when gold was found in California. It was probably a big change. Uh, but, and then the range was reduced largely because, you know, humans were wanting to eliminate carnivores. We had that, you know, a century and a half of, what I call carnivore cleansing, and and uh, you know, grizzlies were pretty well gone where humans lived, and so were wolves, and cougars were greatly reduced because people didn't want them around. And you mentioned earlier that the numbers are actually increasing, which I uh, which I think is I think is kind of surprising too. I mean, I mean they're not increasing everywhere, but in certain areas they are increasing as long as we kind of keep them oh, yeah. protected. Which yeah. I again, I think is probably a little surprising to a lot of people because we wouldn't think that. I don't think. Yeah, no. The the numbers uh, uh, throughout the southern fringe, except for a couple of populations, have generally been on the, on the rise. Uh, of course, the they've monitored them best in the lower forty eight, where there's only really two major populations in Yellowstone and the northern Montana there, and and those numbers have gone way way up in the last 40 years as has the flathead where i worked it it the, the population there almost tripled in the 1980s and 90s and then started spilling out more into alberta and i think the numbers in southwest alberta have been going up a lot and the low valley bottoms in the elk valley around fernie and sparwood and and elkford those numbers have been gradually going up to where there's you know a lot of bears down there uh uh Clayton Lamb, a young, a young, much younger biologist. He's younger than my kids. He's been working there, and he's he's radio collared about almost eighty different grizzly bears in the valley bottom between Elkford and and uh, you know Sparwood and Fernie in that area. So they're they're there. Uh, several populations in southern BC we know have gone up. There's one on the southern coast where we know has doubled in a in a decade. So. Uh, some some are, are doing you know fairly well as as people allow them to you know, as long as we don't kill too many they'll they'll seem to do all right yeah and that's a well obviously one of the challenges of keeping the healthy populations yeah. that i i think um bc is just thinking about bringing the grizzly hunt back correct oh i don't know there's there's chat uh okay it's certainly not going to be a province you know i don't really know but i mean i'm I don't think anybody knows. It was it was a sort of a a, a political ethical decision done by the, a new government that came in that that was one of their platforms. Uh, there is talk about uh, a lot of wildlife management becoming more co-management with the indigenous people, right. and uh, and and there's a lot of you know bands and nations that uh, are you know more keen on on hunting grizzlies than others. So. It, it may happen with indigenous uh, co-management co okay. in places right. eventually, but uh, I don't think we're that close to it yet. But it wouldn't we'll, surprise me if a decade from now there are there is some hunting in right. some areas in the province with the indigenous people uh, support. What's the biggest challenge to maintaining the populations, to keeping the grizzly at least where it is now? Uh, the, big, we, the, the kind of the paradigm of, of management has gradually been changing from, from when it was when I began. Then it was how do we 
recover bears in 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 relatively wild wildernessy places like the Flathead. And uh, I think we've largely succeeded. And in most places, there's a couple that we haven't that we're struggling with. But now, as the bears sort of move out into the valleys where where the people live, we have this uh, coexistence uh, paradigm happening, and that's going to be the big challenge of of having bears around. Uh, is how do we uh, live closer to them, and and that's happening quite a bit. I mean, this this summer was. Uh, was almost almost seemed unique in in the number of grizzlies that were living close to people across across most of southern BC. Uh, there was you know, probably at least a dozen different grizzlies in the Pemberton Meadows, which rarely had more than two or three, which is you know a bit uh, kind of a farming area. Uh, the valley I live in, we've had at least I don't know two or three grizzlies in the valley when that was very rare. Uh, you know, Nelson's had a mother with cubs that they've had troubles with. Uh, I mean, it's, it, it's uh, Whistler, of course, had <laughs> the one I had, had a couple. I just moved it yesterday, helped move it. Uh, so that, that, that is going to be the, the, the new challenge, I think, is, is how do we live closer to these large carnivores <coughs> and, feel, and feel not too frightened of them. Right. And it's, and it's one of these things that they can, they get conditioned. I mean, we have the same problem with the black bears, obviously okay. in Ontario, they get so conditioned to, you know, campgrounds and people and everything else. Yeah. And that's where a lot of the problems arise. Right. Yeah. Well, the terms, yeah, the terms are interesting here, you know, condition like food condition is, uh, you know, when, when a bear associates like humans or the smell of humans or something about humans with getting a good reward and therefore just seeks out the humans for that reward. And that is a, 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 a very big problem with bears because they, they have this uh, amazing ability to get food. They, it's obviously it's very important for them. They have to get obese every year and they're very clever. And if there's good, super good food, they will get it and once they've got it and they make an association with it and people then they'll they'll go after where people are even and that becomes a you know quite a quite a problem i think sometimes that perhaps some of the conflicts we've had are are uh, because the bears were conditioned previously maybe maybe months maybe even a year earlier to something some odor something about the the people and uh, and then then they get into trouble much later and it was somebody who left a you know whatever stakes in the fire six months before that that you know made that bear want to come in and do something we don't want it to so there's there's a lot of that behavior that's uh you know uh tricky to deal with that's for sure you've written a lot of scientific papers over your lifetime did you ever think you'd write a book <laughs> uh not 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 until i you know, got a little older. I know another more senior biologist than me, Steve Herrero, he, he suggested I did it. He wrote a book on bear attacks and he suggested I did. He knew, you know, he knew our life in the flathead and he kind of uh, always encouraged me. Uh, but, you know, when I got to be retirement age, I, you know, I felt young. I still feel young. <laughs> I don't feel any older at 70 than I did at 60. Maybe I just don't remember. But, that's good uh, news for that's good news for guys like me. There, yeah. but but I you know I had I had energy and I and I and it 
you know, doing the grizzly bear research was kind of a full-on job. It's not like a nine-to-five thing. It's it kind of dominates your life, and it becomes what you do. And you you know, it's it's like a twenty-four-seven sort of thing. I, I couldn't just stop. You know, you just you got that momentum and the and the energy. So it just sort of happened after I retired. I just kind of you know worked away, and I enjoy writing. I mean, I I actually do enjoy it. It's uh, it's it gives it's some form of creativity. That's for sure. There's a little line at the front of your book. I think it's in the introduction. It says, uh, "Yes, there were a few. Yep, there were a few mosquitoes, but it was better than watching TV." Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, and and reading the book, it certainly is reflected that. I mean, what are your fondest memories of this extraordinary time with these animals? Uh, well, some of them are watching the bears with the family, like like. So you know, it's, you imagine it's it's summertime. There's long days. Uh, it's August, berry season, and and you know, we finish dinner. It's you know, seven o'clock in the evening. Let's go watch grizzlies. And we did this. We drive up the road for half an hour, and there we'd sit, and there'd be eight grizzly bears on the mountainside eating eating huckleberries. And I had good binoculars, some really good ones, and we could sit there and and watch and watch bears. And we did that often. That that was that's always was fun to be with the family doing that, and even picking berries with the family was always was always kind of fun watching them when they were little. Just you know, the year and a half old, hardly stand up, stumbling around in the berry field, just filling their mouths blue everywhere, filling their diapers all blue. I mean, it was you know, and and even just you know, one one day a week, I would fly the bears in an airplane and.、Uh, And locate them all, because then you know what they all were, and you could start the week with no no out to where every bear was. And、uh, but I'd fly early in the morning, and I'd usually be finished by noon before the winds got too bad and it was really rough. And then I had nothing to do. It was the one half a day a week where I had nothing to do, and I could just sit on the we had a beach, you know, rocky beach right in front of our cabin. And I could sit there and play with the kids and just relax and recover because usually after you know four-hour flight in an airplane, my guts were all tossed upside down. <clears throat> so I could just and just just to spend that time peacefully, quietly on the side of the river. And it's a it's a spectacular valley. I mean, it's it's a unique valley <laughs> in that it's very south. It crosses into the U.S., but there's nobody that lives it. Because it flows south, so it's 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 a mountain surrounded valley, so nobody can get in and out to live easy, and no one has. But it's big and and wide valley bottom with big cottonwood flats, spectacular riparian area, and、uh, and nobody's there. So it was, you know, those those afternoons, relaxing on the beach with my kids was、uh, in a spectacular valley was always a good memory.、Yeah. All right, thanks, Bruce. Dr. Bruce McCullen is a wildlife research ecologist who has spent over 40 years studying the grizzly bear population in southeastern BC. His book *Grizzly Bear Science and the Art of a Wilderness Life* has been published by Rocky Mountain Books and is available from all fine bookstores across the country. Thanks for joining us on Northern Latitudes. Remember, you can always stay connected with us on all major podcast platforms. Just search for Northern Latitudes. And hit that subscribe button to ensure you never miss an episode. And for even more content, including the photo gallery, visit our website at northernlatitudes.ca. Until next time, I'm Bill All, signing off from Northern Latitudes.